Barnaby Rudge, Chapter Fifty Eight. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Brad Philippone. Barnaby Rudge by Charles Dickens, Chapter Fifty Eight. They were not long in reaching the barracks, for the officer who commanded the party was desirous to avoid rousing the people by the display of military force in the streets, and was humanely anxious to give as little opportunity as possible for any attempt at rescue. Knowing that it must lead to bloodshed and loss of life, and that if the civil authorities by whom he was accompanied empowered him to order his men to fire, many innocent persons would probably fall whom curiosity or idleness had attracted to the spot he therefore led the party briskly on avoiding with a merciful prudence the more public and crowded thoroughfares and pursuing those which he deemed least likely to be infested by disorderly persons this wise proceeding not only enabled them to gain their quarters without any interruption but completely baffled a body of rioters who had assembled in one of the main streets through which it was considered certain they would pass and who remained gathered together for the purpose of releasing the prisoner from their hands long after they had deposited him in a place of security closed the barrack gates and set a double guard at every entrance for its better protection Arrived at this place, poor Barnaby was marched into a stone-floored room, where there was a very powerful smell of tobacco, a strong thorough draught of air, and a great wooden bedstead large enough for a score of men. Several soldiers in undress were lounging about, or eating from tin cans, military accoutrements dangled on rows of pegs along the whitewashed wall, and some half-dozen men lay fast asleep upon their backs, snoring in concert. After remaining here just long enough to note these things, he was marched out again, and conveyed across the parade-ground to another portion of the building. Perhaps a man never sees so much at a glance as when he is in a situation of extremity. The chances are a hundred to one that if Barnaby had lounged in at the gate to look about him, he would have lounged out again with a very imperfect idea of the place, and would have remembered very little about it but as he was taken handcuffed across the gravelled area nothing escaped his notice the dry arid look of the dusty square and of the bare brick building the clothes hanging at some of the windows and the men in their shirt-sleeves and braces lolling with half their bodies out of the others the green sun-blinds at the officers quarters and the little scanty trees in front the drummer-boys practising in a distant courtyard the men at drill on the parade, the two soldiers carrying a basket between them, who winked to each other as he went by, and slyly pointed to their throats, the spruce sergeant who hurried past with a cane in his hand, and under his arm a clasped book with a velum cover, the fellows in the ground-floor rooms furbishing and brushing up their different articles of dress, who stopped to look at him, and whose voices as they spoke together echoed loudly through the empty galleries and passages. Everything, down to the stand of muskets before the guard-house, and the drum with a pipe-clayed belt attached, in one corner, impressed itself upon his observation, as though he had noticed them in the same place a hundred times, or had been a whole day among them in place of one brief hurried minute. He was taken into a small paved backyard, and there they opened a great door, plated with iron, and pierced some five feet above the ground with a few holes to let in air and light. 
Into this dungeon he was walked straightway, and having locked him up there and placed a sentry over him, they left him to his meditations. The cell, or black hole, for it had those words painted on the door, was very dark, and having recently accommodated a drunken deserter, by no means clean. Barnaby felt his way to some straw at the farther end, and looking towards the door tried to accustom himself to the gloom which coming from the bright sunshine out of doors was not an easy task. There was a kind of portico or colonnade outside, and this obstructed even the little light that at the best could have found its way through the small apertures in the door. The footsteps of the sentinel echoed monotonously as he paced its stone pavement to and fro, reminding Barnaby of the watch he had so lately kept himself, and as he passed and repassed the door he made the cell for an instant so black by the interposition of his body that his going away again seemed like the appearance of a new ray of light, and was quite a circumstance to look for. When the prisoner had sat some time upon the ground, gazing at the chinks, and listening to the advancing and receding footsteps of his guard, the man stood still upon his post. Barnaby, quite unable to think or to speculate on what would be done with him, had been lulled into a kind of doze by his regular pace, but his stopping roused him, and then he became aware that two men were in conversation under the colonnade and very near the door of his cell. How long they had been talking there he could not tell, for he had fallen into an unconsciousness of his real position, and when the footsteps ceased, was answering aloud some question which seemed to have been put to him by Hugh in the stable, though of the fancied purport, either of question or reply, notwithstanding that he awoke with the latter on his lips, he had no recollection whatever. The first words that reached his ears were these— why is he brought here, then, if he has to be taken away again so soon? Why, where would you have him go? Dammy, he's not as safe anywhere as among the king's troops, is he? What would you do with him? Would you hand him over to a pack of cowardly civilians that shake in their shoes till they wear the soles out with trembling at the threats of the ragamuffins he belongs to? That's true enough. True enough. I'll tell you what. I wish, Tom Green, that I was a commissioned instead of a non-commissioned officer, and that I had the command of two companies, only two companies, of my own regiment. Call me out to stop these riots, give me the needful authority, and half a dozen rounds of ball cartridge. Aye, said the other voice, that's all very well, but they won't give the needful authority. If the magistrate won't give the word, what's the officer to do?' Not very well knowing, as it seemed, how to overcome this difficulty, the other man contented himself with damning the magistrates. "'With all my heart,' said his friend. "'Where's the use of a magistrate?' returned the other voice. "'What's a magistrate in this case but an impertinent, unnecessary, unconstitutional sort of interference? Here's a proclamation. Here's a man referred to in that proclamation. Here's proof against him, and a witness on the spot. Dammy! Take him out in shootin', sir. Who wants a magistrate? When does he go before Sir John Fielding? asked the man who had spoken first. Tonight at eight o'clock, returned the other. Mark what follows. The magistrate commits him to Newgate. Our people take him to Newgate. The rioters pelt our people. Our people retire before the rioters. Stones are thrown. Insults are offered. Not a shot fired. Why? Because of the magistrates. Damn the magistrates! When he had in some degree relieved his mind by cursing the magistrates in various other forms of speech, 
The man was silent, save for a low growling, still having reference to those authorities which from time to time escaped him. Barnaby, who had wit enough to know that this conversation concerned, and very nearly concerned, himself, remained perfectly quiet until they ceased to speak, when he groped his way to the door, and, peeping through the air-holes, tried to make out what kind of men they were, to whom he had been listening. The one who condemned the civil power in such strong terms was a sergeant, engaged just then, as the streaming ribbons in his cap announced, on the recruiting service. He stood leaning sideways against a pillar nearly opposite the door, and as he growled to himself, drew figures on the pavement with his cane. The other man had his back towards the dungeon, and Barnaby could only see his form. To judge from that, he was a gallant, manly, handsome fellow, but he had lost his left arm. It had been taken off between the elbow and the shoulder, and his empty coat-sleeve hung about his breast. It was probably this circumstance which gave him an interest beyond any that his companion could boast of, and attracted Barnaby's attention. There was something soldierly in his bearing, and he wore a jaunty cap and jacket. Perhaps he had been in the service at one time or other. If he had, it could not have been very long ago, for he was but a young fellow now. "'Well, well,' he said thoughtfully, "'let the fault be where it may. It makes a man sorrowful to come back to old England and see her in this condition.' "'I suppose the pigs will join him next,' said the sergeant, with an imprecation on the rioters, "'now that the birds have set him the example.' "'The birds?' repeated Tom Green. "'Ah, birds,' said the sergeant testily. "'That's English, ain't it?' "'I don't know what you mean.' "'Go to the guard-house and see. "'You'll find a bird there that's got their cry as pat as any of them, "'and balls no popery like a man, or like a devil, as he says he is. "'I shouldn't wonder.' "'The devil's loose in London somewhere. Damn if I wouldn't twist his neck round with a chance if I had my way!' The young man had taken two or three steps away, as if to go and see this creature when he was arrested by the voice of Barnaby. "'It's mine!' he called out, half laughing and half weeping. "'My pet! My friend! Grip! Ha! 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 Don't hurt him! He has done no harm! I taught him! It's my fault! Let me have him, if you please!' "'He's the only friend I have left now. "'He'll not dance or talk or whistle for you, I know, "'but he will for me, because he knows me and loves me, "'though you wouldn't think it very well. "'You wouldn't hurt a bird, I'm sure. "'You're a brave soldier, sir, and wouldn't harm a woman or a child. "'No, no, nor a poor bird, I'm certain.' This latter adjuration was addressed to the sergeant, whom Barnaby judged from his red coat to be high in office, and able to seal Grip's destiny by a word. But that gentleman in reply surlily damned him for a thief and rebel as he was, and with many disinterested imprecations on his own eyes, liver, blood, and body, assured him that if it rested with him to decide, he would put a final stopper on the bird and his master too. "'You talk boldly to a caged man,' said Barnaby, in anger. "'If I was on the other side of this door, and there were none to part us, you'd change your note. Ay, you may toss your head. You would. Kill the bird. Do kill anything you can, and so revenge yourself on those who with their bare hands untied could do as much to you.' Having vented his defiance, he flung himself into the furthest corner of the prison, and muttering, "'Good-bye, Grip! Good-bye, dear old Grip!' shed tears for the first time since he had been taken captive, and hid his face in the straw. He had had some fancy at first that the one-armed man would help, or would give him a kind word in answer. He hardly knew why, but he hoped and thought so. 
The young fellow had stopped when he called out, and, checking himself in the very act of turning round, stood listening to every word he said. Perhaps he built his feeble trust on this, perhaps on his being young and having a frank and honest manner. However that might be, he built on sand. The other went away directly he had finished speaking, and neither answered him nor returned. No matter. They were all against him here. He might have known as much. Good-bye, old Grip. Good-bye. After some time they came and unlocked the door and called to him to come out. He rose directly and complied, for he would not have them think he was subdued or frightened. He walked out like a man, and looked from face to face. None of them returned his gaze or seemed to notice it. They marched him back to the parade by the way they had brought him, and there they halted among a body of soldiers, at least twice as numerous as that which had taken him prisoner in the afternoon. The officer he had seen before bade him in a few brief words take notice that if he attempted to escape, no matter how favourable a chance he might suppose he had, certain of the men had orders to fire upon him that moment. They then closed round him as before, and marched him off again. In the same unbroken order they arrived at Bow Street, followed and beset on all sides by a crowd which was continually increasing. Here he was placed before a blind gentleman, and asked if he wished to say anything not he. What had he got to tell them? After a very little talking, which he was careless of and quite indifferent to, they told him he was to go to Newgate, and took him away. He went out into the street, so surrounded and hemmed in on every side by soldiers, that he could see nothing. But he knew there was a great crowd of people by the murmur, and that they were not friendly to the soldiers, was soon rendered evident by their yells and hisses. How often and how eagerly he listened for the voice of Hugh! There was not a voice he knew among them all. Was Hugh a prisoner too? Was there no hope? As they came nearer and nearer to the prison, the hootings of the people grew more violent, stones were thrown, and every now and then a rush was made against the soldiers which they staggered under. One of them, close before him, smarting under a blow upon the temple, levelled his musket, but the officer struck it upwards with his sword, and ordered him, on peril of his life, to desist. This was the last thing he saw with any distinctness, for directly afterwards he was tossed about and beaten to and fro, as though in a tempestuous sea. But go where he would, there were the same guards about him. Twice or thrice he was thrown down, and so were they. But even then he could not elude their vigilance for a moment. They were up again, and had closed about him, before he, with his wrists so tightly bound, could scramble to his feet. Fenced in thus, he felt himself hoisted to the top of a low flight of steps, and then for a moment he caught a glimpse of the fighting in the crowd, and of a few red coats sprinkled together here and there, struggling to rejoin their fellows. Next moment everything was dark and gloomy, and he was standing in the prison lobby, the centre of a group of men. A smith was speedily in attendance, who riveted upon him a set of heavy irons. Stumbling on as well as he could, beneath the usual burden of these fetters, he was conducted to a strong stone cell, where fastening the door with locks and bolts and chains they left him, well secured. Having first, unseen by him, thrust in Grip, who, with his head drooping, and his deep black plumes rough and rumpled, appeared to comprehend and to partake his master's fallen fortunes. End of chapter 58